Today's scripture reading is from Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's a joy to see you this morning in worship. It is Labor Day weekend, um, and there's just a little hint of fall in the air, and I am so excited. Um, I decorate uh, my house a, a lot for the fall, and I started bringing out this fall decor yesterday. I know, I know that fall doesn't start until you know later this month, but still, I mean, College football was yesterday, right? Am I right? It started back, so yes, I get claps for college football. That's nice. Um, so yeah, so happy Labor Day weekend. Um, our senior minister, uh, Reverend Dr. Jared Longbonds, is away with his family for a much-needed vacation, and so I am happy to fill the pulpit and bring today's sermon to you. So let us begin with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for you are good and you are kind, and you are loving. And you have invited us this morning to hear from you. And I pray, Father, that you would open our ears, help us to hear from you this morning. Father, may the meditation of our hearts together, the words of my lips, may they be pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, so it's the beginning of the school year, and the beginning of the school year is a very important time of year for the teacher to set the tone of the classroom. It's when they share expectations and talk to their class about what they will learn and what the goals are and what the rules are for the classroom. So it was at the beginning of one of my elementary school years, perhaps third grade or fourth grade, when a teacher presented the class with a poster board, and at the top of the poster board was written in big, bold letters, class rules. But was, that was the only thing written on the poster board. And I, I was a bit concerned, my uh, eight-year-old self, a bit, bit worried that the teacher had forgotten to write the class rules. But she began to explain and talk to the class how important it was to have rules, to have guidelines, that these help the classroom, that everyone feels safe, and to help us focus as we learn. 
And then she did something that I thought was pretty revolutionary. She asked the class what the rules should be. She didn't present us with her own made-up instructions, she, but instead she gave us, the students, elementary age kids, the power to decide what the behavioral expectations of the class should be. And do you know what? We came up with some pretty good rules. It was basic things like, you know, raise your hand if you want to talk, or be kind, and no hitting, you know, things that everyone knows would create a good learning environment at that age. And I look back on that class, and I'm really proud of the class rules that we created. I mean, we, we came together on that. And it may be the reason why I like to make up the rules now. I don't too much like to follow the rules that are set by others. Perhaps you're similar. But looking back on that teacher's experiment, you know, I wonder, did she guide our thinking a bit? Did she maybe manipulate what we were saying to make it be what she wanted the rules to be in her mind? What if we would have made up the rule, say, everyone wears purple on Fridays? I mean, would she have gone with that? Would she have written that down and, and held us to it? You know, we all have rules and regulations and policies in our lives that we have to follow along with. Uh, some are good, some make sense, some we wonder about. And here, as we look at our scripture text this morning from Romans 12, it reads a lot like a list of rules and guidelines. Do this, don't do this, do this, you have to do this. And my uh, legalistic background kind of bristles at this and says, no, no, I don't want my faith to be just a list of rules of do's and don'ts. That's not what I want my faith to be about. So we have to look at this passage in its full context. And we look at what Paul is writing at the beginning of chapter 12. And he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so simply these uh, verses, 9 through 21 then, is a result of that transformed life. It is what a Christian should act because of the work of the Spirit in their life. It's what you do. It's, it, it is an outpouring of the Spirit changing us, changing us, um, transforming us rather. And so it's obvious to us what some of these rules should be, but then others, the behavior sometimes, it looks, it causes us to wonder and pause. What was Apostle Paul thinking when he wrote some of these transformative behaviors? But I would suggest that these behaviors are what sets the community of Jesus apart, and it grounds our teaching, our preaching, our programs, our, our proclamation, it's the life of faith. It's a life that invites us to be in the world and to come alongside people and walk with people and love people. And the Apostle Paul then provides this blueprint for living a life that's marked by characteristics such as genuine love, compassion, and unwavering commitment to Christ's teachings. So let's look at these, this list and discover this faithful life. And it's marked by a radical love. The first, first and foremost, it is a sincere love. As I mentioned, a radical love. Verse 9, Paul instructs us to let our love be genuine, without hypocrisy, to be sincere. 
The word love here is the Greek word agape. And it's a high form of love. It's often used in scripture to describe God's love for people. But Paul is using it here to describe our love for one another. It's a call to authenticity, to be real, to be genuine, both here in the church and beyond. Many of you know my work with teenagers. I've worked with high school and middle school kids for nearly 25 years, and I've often heard them complain, and more so recently, that so many people in their world are fake. They're just not real. It's just too easy to hide behind a mask or a filter. There's lots of filters on social media that make you appear better than you are. But they say, teenagers say that, you know, there's people out there that they do one thing, they say one thing and then do another. Or they pretend to be your friend only to use what you share with them in confidence against you later. Our love should be just the opposite. Our love should mirror this real, authentic love that Christ has shown us so that others might catch a glimpse of it in our actions, so that our actions match our words. In Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz, he has a chapter called Love, How to Really Love Others. In it, he describes, he tells a story about a time where he heard a lecture from Greg Spencer. And Professor Spencer was talking about these metaphors that people use, that we use around, among other things, we use them around relationships. We talk about how we value people, how we invest in people, how we say people are priceless, or that that relationship is bankrupt. All these, are metaphor, all these metaphors are economic ones, right, financial ones. And so Miller writes, and I quote, and that's when it hit me like so much epiphany getting dislodged from my arteries. The problem with Christian culture is we think of love as a commodity. We use it like money. Professor Spencer was right. And not only was he right, I felt as though he had cured me, as though he had let me out of my cage. I could see it very clearly. If somebody is doing something for us, offering us something, be it gifts, time, popularity, or what have you, we feel they have value. We feel they are worth something to us. And perhaps we feel they are priceless. I could see it so clearly and I could feel it in the pages of my life. This was the thing that had smelled so rotten all these years. I used love like money. The church used love like money. With money, we withheld affirmation from the people who did not agree with us, and we lavishly financed the ones who did." End quote. Miller goes on to tell a story of a man in his church that he had a very difficult time loving. Even though he went to church with him, he found this man to be very sarcastic and lazy and manipulative. And, and Miller was very annoyed with this man and wished that this man would just change. He just wished he could change this man. And as, but he couldn't bring it, he didn't know how to communicate that to this person. And so he displayed passive actions like rolling his eyes or giving this guy dirty looks. Miller withheld love from this man. And he writes about it. He says, and I quote, after Greg Spencer's lecture, I knew what I was doing was wrong. It was selfish. And what's more, it would never work. 
By withholding love from my friend, he became defensive, he didn't like me, he thought I was judgmental, snobbish, proud, and mean. Rather than being drawn to me, wanting to change, he was repulsed. I was guilty of using love like money, withholding it to get somebody to be how I wanted them to be. I was making a mess of everything, and I was disobeying God." End quote. So Miller realized that instead of withholding love to change somebody, he needed to pour it on. He needed to lavishly love this person. It's the agape Paul is writing about in Romans 12. Because God never withholds love from us to teach us something. He gives it to us freely, abundantly. Miller discovered, nobody will listen to you unless they sense that you like them. Again, in my youth ministry days, I worked with an organization called Young Life and worked with high school kids. And in it, we had um, our staff and our volunteers would often remind one another that a young person doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care, how much you genuinely love them, sincerely care about them. In a world filled with superficiality and authentic love really comes through. It's a really powerful testimony of faith, of faith in Christ. So faithfulness demands that our love for one another be sincere, free from hypocrisy, and rooted in Christ's sacrificial love. And it's this genuine love that sets the tone for the rest of what Paul is saying here in, in Romans 12, marks of a faithful Christian life. But first, we have to have that genuine love, the foundation. And everything else is a natural expression of that love. We read in verse 10 that that love produces this desire, this want to outdo one another in showing honor. It's a call to selflessness where we prioritize the needs of others above our own, fostering an environment of mutual respect and care in healthy ways. Excuse me. There is a joke that is often told, and I'm terrible at telling jokes, and so bear with me. But the joke says, you know how a husband can show selflessness and sacrificial love to his wife? He can give her the TV remote. <laughs> oh, you laughed. Oh, that's great. Um, I was a little, a little worried. But no, honestly, it, you know, it's said that particularly in marriage, um, the, the selflessness, you, you find out how selfish you really are when you get married, when you have to um, you know, honor someone and look to their needs above your own. Um, I'm going to tell a story. If you've watched the um, movie or read the book by Nicholas Sparks, it, it was made into a movie, The Notebook. It's a very um, romantic drama. But the main characters, Allie and Noah, they show selfless love for one another. Noah writes letters to Allie on every day for a whole year. And even though she didn't receive them because her mother intercepted him, he kept writing, kept writing. And then when they were reunited years later, Noah said he would do anything to make Allie happy, even if that means sacrificing his own dreams and his own desires. 
For example, he buys an old house and he fixes it up, fixes it up, planning for them to live there together. And when Allie's parents object to the relationship, Noah says to Allie that, you know, I'll walk away, I'll leave you alone if that's what you really want. He was willing to sacrifice his own happiness for hers. Selflessness. It's an important aspect of a healthy and successful relationship, especially marriage. It means putting your your partner's needs and happiness above your own. And when both partners are selfless, they're more likely to have a strong relationship, a strong loving relationship that helps them weather the ups and downs of life. And there are ups and downs of life. Paul acknowledges in verse 12 that life is often filled with trials and tribulations, and you know it and I know it, but yet as faithful believers, we're called to be patient in the face of adversity. We're supposed to pray in the times of trials and tribulations. Our joy is rooted in the hope that we have in Christ, even in the midst of challenges. Our faith is not tested in times of ease, but it's refined through the perseverance in times of trouble. And perhaps you're going through it now. Perhaps you wonder how, just how are you going to make it through? What is going to come of the situation you're in now? I want you to listen to me. Are you listening? You will make it through. You will. You can do hard things. I have to tell myself this often, you can do hard things. Don't quit, don't give up, keep going, keep persevering, pray. Invite others to pray with you and for you. Gather your people around you. This church is a praying church. Fill out those prayer cards, we pray for you. You will make it through and you can't give up. You won't give up. You can't make it alone, though. And I believe that's one reason Paul goes on to talk about practicing hospitality, that we need each other. He reminds us to extend warmth and welcome to both friend and strangers. By opening up our hearts and our homes, we create this space for fellowship, this, this space for connection, sharing in God's love. You know, there are a few people that come to my mind when I hear the word hospitality. Perhaps you think of some people in your own life that have shown you hospitality, that just embody the the spirit of hospitality. You know, when I was in college, like so many college students, I was far from home and living in a dorm room and eating cafeteria food. And it was always just such a special treat to be invited into a family's home. They, there was a, a couple that I remember from a friend's church. They regularly had home, uh, regularly opened their home to students. Um, and even though I didn't attend their church, I served at another church, they would welcome me anytime they were having college students over and having activities in their home. On, Friday, on Wednesday evenings, um, after I had already served the youth group at my own church, I would hurry over to this family's home to be welcomed in with warm cookies and welcoming smiles and games and Bible study. I felt right at home. Their hospitality to college students was incredible. It was outstanding. It was something to imitate. 
They were faithful people. Faithfulness is also reflected in not only how we welcome others, but how we respond to those who wrong us. In verse 14, Paul urges us to bless those who persecute us and not to curse them. Perhaps this is one of the most challenging commands, but it also is the one that reflects the transformative power of Christ's love the most. It's when we respond to hostility with blessing, we break the cycle of hatred and pave the way for reconciliation. And this requires an unwavering trust in God's justice. We have to trust and believe that God has his ways and his ways are higher than our own. In 2006, a gunman, a gunman entered an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania and killed five young girls before taking his own life. The tragedy shocked the nation, but what happened next was perhaps even more remarkable. The Amish community forgave the shooter, and he re they reached out to the family to show compassion and support. The mother of one of the slain girls said, we must not think evil of this man. The Amish community even attended the shooter's funeral to show their support for the family. Forgiveness, it's hard, but it, forgiveness brings healing and hope in the midst of tragedy. Perhaps, again, this is the most challenging aspect of, of a Christian life, a faithful life, overcoming evil with good, learning to forgive, Rather than to seek revenge, we offer kindness and goodness to those that have wronged us. This mirrors Christ's ultimate act of faithfulness on the cross, where he conquered sin with love, love for each one of us. So living a faithful life, as outlined in Romans 12, 9 through 21, is a lifelong journey. We often get it wrong but aren't we so glad there's grace? We get chances to get it right, and every now and then we do. Every now and then we love genuinely. We sacrifice our own desires for others. We discern between good and evil. We're patient when we endure tribulation. We overcome evil with good. So as we apply these principles in our daily lives, our faith becomes just this radiant beacon drawing others closer to God. Let us then embody these elements, these behaviors, bringing light to the darkness and hope into despair. A faithful life is not simply a list of rules and guidelines not a checklist of what we do and don't do. Our lives are to be a testament to the transformative power of God's love by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Our lives are to be a testament to the transformative power of Christ's love by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. May we live a faithful life with genuine love as the foundation. Amen.